there's just been this increase in polarization and there's been this move on the other side to not accept the idea that elections could result in Democrats winning elections. There's more, I think, risk that we're going to see a lot more activity on the Republican side in this regard. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Adam Bobro. He is building technology for voter protection and a new startup company called Osprey. Adam's previously been a lawyer and entrepreneur, has worked in many parts of our federal government, including the White House, and from time to time in the voter protection part of key political campaigns. We had a good conversation about Adam's career and what he's trying to do in the technology for voter protection space. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Adam Bobro at Osprey. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Adam, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I, I grew up actually in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and then um, got interested in a young age in dealing with China. And so started uh, studying Chinese actually in high school and came to Georgetown University as an undergrad st- to study Chinese. It was my major. Just found that that was, that was the kind of thing that the more you learned, the less you knew. And so you just kept studying it. You kept sort of pursuing um, different angles on learning about China. And I decided that, um, that I was very interested in sort of the legal development. So I, I went to law school, returned to St. Louis, went to Washington University in St. Louis. So sort of arrived back in DC in the beginning of 1998 as a newly minted Chinese speaking lawyer who was very interested in the international aspects of our relationship with China and how do you deal with a country that's growing that fast and, and hopefully liberalizing. I may have been sort of a little bit optimistic, uh, but I guess I wasn't the only one. And I actually went to work for the Commerce Department as an attorney working with the International Trade Administration, which at the time was um, authorized by Congress in the wake of our permanent normal trade relations legislation to do some technical assistance training with the Chinese government. So we, I was able to participate in trainings on things as varied as like sort of judicial process, intellectual property regulation. I actually did a, a roadshow uh, with a group that was talking to the Chinese about franchise regulation. So it really ranged in terms of what I was working on. Um, and sort of doubling down on that, I ended up moving from the Commerce Department to one of the two commissions that was created by that same legislation, the Congressional Executive Commission on China, and, uh, and working even more sort of 
completely on Chinese rule of law development. That was pretty fascinating. Um, and then, you know, it took sort of an interesting turn, which is that my wife joined the Foreign Service. So we moved to Ankara, Turkey. That was like not originally in the plan, but it was kind of, it was kind of fun. Uh, I became a, an entrepreneur really for the first time. So I, I joined with a couple of former Commerce Department colleagues and we started trying to advise companies that were doing business in China. One of my partners actually was an export controls expert. So we were trying to come up with ways to do thing to, to help companies that wanted to manufacture in China with things that were sort of on the dual use list to set up programs that where the surveillance was appropriate to the, to the risks. Um, so that was one sort of side of it. And the other side of it was looking for institutional investor opportunities in China. And I basically did that while I was in Turkey. It was sort of an interim thing. I think if it had, if it had really taken off, then maybe it would have been the permanent thing in my life. But, um, but just with the incredible frustration that I felt with the Bush administration, including, you know, having worked at the Commerce Department during the Bush administration, um, like I was super excited about the election in 2008. So really for the first time jumped into politics, you know, it was very much the, um, the sort of legacy way that voter protection was done. We came back from Turkey in 2008. So I had missed the primary cycle. I really wanted to get on the campaign. So at that point, I jumped on the general campaign. I went back to St. Louis uh, just because I had more connections there. And it was a battleground state. I mean, I live in, I live in um, Maryland. So it was not a state where there was really a campaign operation. I arrived at the campaign office. I had a friend who was a local elected. And she said she sort of introduced me and was my calling card. And they said, oh, you're a lawyer? Great. You're going to do voter protection. So I became one of the several deputy voter protection coordinators for the state. And I, and I worked basically full time, you know, volunteering on the campaign for a little more than two months. Same stuff that voter protection does now, although perhaps at a slightly less kind of sophisticated level. But, you know, we, we drafted a guide to Missouri voting law, digesting it into a form that volunteers could, could um, understand. We did trainings in Missouri, in Missouri, sort of all over the state. Many of them were in St. Louis, but I ended up in... Kansas City at one point, Springfield at another point. And we trained volunteers, you know, thousand volunteers to do the work in the polling places and observe the vote, report incidents and all of those things. And then for the first time staffed a boiler room in, in, the, in the state boiler room in, in St. Louis on election day. We came within 3,000 and some votes of winning Missouri actually our Missouri campaign for Obama really wanted to, you know, contest the election because we were close enough that I think we could have done so. And if I remember correctly, we could have done so and not paid for it. I uh, could have gotten the state to pay for it. The national campaign was smarter than we were, of course, and said like, no, we won the election. We don't need to look like bad winners and like fight about whether we won Missouri or not. And of course, since then, Missouri really has not been competitive. Um, and I've never returned to work in Missouri. I returned to Maryland at that point, And then in subsequent cycles have worked in a variety of other, mostly Virginia. But to not to skip too far ahead, I ended up getting an opportunity to join the administration and put my China skills to work. Um, I started as Secretary Locke's China advisor in the Secretary's Office of Commerce in 2010, and then spent about five years doing a wide variety of jobs in the administration. My principal kept leaving, so I kept moving on to another thing. But the theme really became very sort of interestingly, you know, when I started working on China 
in the federal government in 2000, it was how do we help China liberalize? How do we help China build its economy in a way that's consistent with the rules of the international uh, trade regime, et cetera, et cetera. By the time I came back in 2010, it was much more a question of how do we stop China from stealing our intellectual property, not just our intellectual property, but our innovative capacity, largely through cyber means. So the cyber security aspects, the cyber questions, both from the policy perspective, but also from a technical perspective to some extent, became much more the animating part of the discussion that I was engaged in in a variety of different ways. I guess what crystallized my role in the administration over time was that I would show up for these meetings and people would say like, so which hat is it you're wearing now? Like which, which bureau are you working for? And, you know, we know you're still coming to these meetings because you're still a valuable contributor on the question of what should we do about China and cyber theft? But, you know, are you coming from PTO? Or are you coming from the secretary's office? And eventually, actually, I moved over. I worked in the general counsel's office. And then I moved over to the White House and worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, where I was like the lead staffer for international engagement writ large, but specifically focusing on the innovation dialogue that John Holdren is the OSTP director and the Minister of Science and Technology in China were leading. Uh, it was supposed to be a you know track one and a half dialogue where it was, you know, we met on a government basis, but we also recruited experts from outside. And we talked about how do we deal with China's desire to be an innovative country without basically just stealing it or building on what was truly innovative that was going on outside of China and just sort of adapting it in, inside of China. That sort of ultimately resulted in me making a bit of a change, which was I left the administration in 2015 and I moved back into the entrepreneurial space and I set up a business to focus on cybersecurity. That switch, I think, is is both sort of a little unusual because I'm not a I'm not a technical expert, right? I'm not I'm not a hands-on keyboards kind of read logs and kick the intruder out of your system person. But as a lawyer, as a person who had done a lot of policy, I have a strategic sort of approach to it. So the cybersecurity stuff became very strategic. In the meantime, I kept working on campaigns. So um, while I was in the administration, it was a little bit more difficult. So in 2012, I, I did do a little voter protection sort of on election day and around election day. But starting in 2016, I ended up working in boiler rooms and for you know a couple of weeks at a time, really focused as sort of a super vault on voter protection. In 2016 in Ohio, that was, of course, an incredibly depressing night. Um, and then in 2017 through last year in Virginia, um, where I've become sort of more of a um, I guess sort of a longer term volunteer with more direct experience of, and, and familiarity with the, with the team and with the folks who have been running the program for the last four or five years. So that's been really uh, rewarding. I will say I'm sort of the tech savvy lawyer in the group, right? So I showed up in 2020 and we had early vote for the first time and we had all these polling locations we needed to put people into and we had, you know, the regular array of Google Sheets where it's like, you know, you got a Google sheet with this person's information. You got another Google sheet that has all the people's information in a different format. You've got a Google sheet that has the polling locations. And I managed to sort of put it all together into a single sheet, put it onto a map and turn it over to the director and the deputy director. And they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm like, not really. It's just a Google sheet. Like it's just, I've just moved some sheets around. And they're like, you should do this like professionally. <laughs> and I thought, 
I don't, I don't think that's really what I need to do. I don't think that I'm doing anything that's that remarkable. Uh, I just happen to be sort of the most spreadsheet capable person in the room, right? But not, I'm certainly not a coder. I don't have that kind of background. Um, and, you know, up to that point, my experience was that going all the way back to 2008, if you're a lawyer and you show up to volunteer on the campaign, they say, oh, you're going to do voter protection. And so you have a room full of lawyers and some of them are engineers or have engineering backgrounds or have some technology, but they're usually not coders. They're usually not like um, uh, really have a programming expertise or, or that type of thing. And so it was at the very beginning of 2021 in the runoff where, you know, everyone converged on that runoff. And of course, being in the middle of the pandemic, it was all virtual. So people were working from all over the country and really all over the world trying to get Asaf and Warnock elected. And for the first time in my experience, we really had a large number of volunteers on voter protection who were not lawyers. So we had traditional organizers, we had technologists, we had some developers. And as a result, from a variety of different places, people were putting together these spreadsheets and saying, well, I have a, a way of doing this that I used in, I said, you know, I, I have a way of doing this that I used in Virginia. Somebody else said, I have a way of doing this that I used in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, et cetera. After we won, several of us kept meeting to sort of talk about, could we build something that could be used across a variety of states that would be sustainable, that would be a product that people could continue to use in voter protection and solve this problem maybe a little bit more once and for all. So we, we moved sort of beyond just the mapping system, which helped a, an individual user look at the map and say, oh, there's a polling place, there's a person some enhancements, like here's a circle around the person that says how far they're willing to travel, what polling places are actually within that circle, et cetera, to, to actually getting a computer to do all of that. So, you know, that type of an optimization problem is obviously a big reason why we really like computers. And it's a problem that a computer can solve very easily where a human being, right, cannot. A couple of people on the 2020 and 2021 election campaigns had worked on trying to develop an algorithm. And we've sort of taken that work to the next level so that ultimately, once you put the information in about the people who are volunteering and the polling places, you're in a position to be able to push a button and say, now give me the most optimal, according to the characteristics, according to the constraints, give me the most optimal assignment of each of the people to each of the polling places. And so like that, you know, obviously means that voter protection staff doesn't have to sit there and run through a series of spreadsheets, look at a Google map and spend both a lot of time and come up with a less than optimal solution to this problem. So far, the folks that we've used it with, the folks that we've talked to about it really, really like it, um, which, has been, which has been exciting and really gratifying. I think for the uninitiated, can you say a little bit about why we even need voter protection? Absolutely. What, what is the problem there? Why are we needing to have lawyers and states and volunteers and a whole operation around making sure people can vote? Yeah. So, I mean, voter protection as a part of the campaign comes out of the 2020 election disaster, right? And the, what happened in Florida, the fact that if you, if you think about what happened there, people were voting on the butterfly ballot in for, for candidate they probably didn't want. Uh, you had situations in which just the the outcome was in question. And more fundamentally, over time, right, there have been voter intimidation tactics, there have been access to the ballot issues that could be resolved through process. Um, 
more polling places, better trained or better informed election officials. And a lot of those problems can be resolved if you can resolve them sort of at the point that they occur rather than after the fact, or trying to identify them after the fact without the data to do so is also a problem if you're trying to ask for more time, if you're trying to ask for some sort of a, a clarification on what the, the the vote totals look like. So out of that experience, the Democratic Party started to set up voter protection as part of the campaign infrastructure. And in that campaign infrastructure, the idea is to put volunteers in polling locations to observe the vote in real time with the goal of enabling as many people to vote as possible. It's, it's very interesting. It, it, it turns into a state-by-state effort because the voting rules are almost entirely state-based. I've now worked in five or six states and like Massachusetts, anybody can wander into a polling place. Right? No, no particular restriction. There might be a tape on, line on the, if I remember correctly, on the ground that like only officials can go past. But if you want to have an observer in the polling place, you just send somebody in. It's not that big a deal. Um, in Virginia, the person who's inside actually is sort of all but fully integrated into the operation of the day. They sit behind the table where the election officials check people in. They are able to communicate both with voters and with election officials, but it's just one person per precinct. And that person has to be a registered Virginia voter. If you move to North Carolina or Pennsylvania, not only does the person have to be a registered voter in the state, they have to be a registered voter in the county in which they're volunteering. So it doesn't necessarily have to be your specific polling place, but you can't go too far in each of these locations. And then the the other thing to note is that often the person is identified as or authorized to challenge votes. Our policy universally across democratic voter protection programs is that we don't challenge votes. That's not why we're there. It's a partisan activity in that we're working for the democratic party and we're hoping that the democratic candidates will win. But the idea is to make sure that everyone who's entitled to vote actually has an opportunity to vote. So voter protection programs have been instrumental in sort of making sure that what's happening at the polling place across a state is consistent with what the legal requirements are and that people are getting the best possible information. We do, of course, prioritize the polling places where we think we can do the most to protect democratic voters. That's where the partisan valence maybe comes into it. But the the idea is, you know, I think the most frequent um, way that we have an impact in terms of the voters on the ground is that we're redirecting people who are in the wrong location to the right location. There's no conspiracy. There's no like bad behavior going on. You just have a situation in which someone has gone to their previous polling place, but they moved. So they no longer are supposed to vote there, or they've gone to um, a polling place because someone told them that was where the polling place was, but they didn't check or weren't able to confirm where their actual polling place was. And so making sure those people understand that if they vote provisionally, but it's in the wrong place, it won't be counted, making sure they understand where their actual polling place is, helping them get a ride to make sure that they can get to that actual polling place. That's probably the most sort of mundane routine thing that voter protection volunteers do in polling places. Um, And we recruit people to sit inside the polling place and we recruit people to stand outside the polling place. So there's some ability to coordinate that type of activity. The second thing, right, is to document when behavior that's inconsistent with the law is going on. Just to take one example, in almost all jurisdictions, certainly the ones that I've worked in, 
there's curbside voting available for people who are unable for mobility reasons to get into the polling place. And the rules for who qualifies differ in different places. But you may have an election judge who's like busy and doesn't want to do that. Seems like a pain in the neck. And so having somebody in the polling place to be able to say like, no, no, you actually have to go out there and allow that person to vote in their car can be very helpful. And if, you know, if the voting official is still unwilling to do that, you can then report that through sort of the chain. So you can send that back to the people in the boiler room who are sort of the, the more super volunteer folks and the staff who can then reach out to the election official who runs the election in that county and say, like, you've got a judge in this precinct who's refusing to go out and do curbside voting, like basically on a blanket basis, even though there are people who qualify who are requesting curbside voting. And normally that's all it takes. Then there'll be a phone call from the county election official to the you know, precinct election official, and they'll say, you, know, you got to go do this. They'll either they or one of the other election judges will go out. So, so that, that turns out to be a very effective thing. But obviously, if, if you it becomes very difficult, if you don't have somebody in, the, in or outside the polling place and you can't document that that's happening, and once it's happened and the person sort of drives off and says, oh, I guess I can't vote here, that you pretty much have lost that vote, right? That person's not likely to come back. You're not likely to get a judge who's going to say like, oh, well, we need to redo the election because someone didn't get to do curbside voting. Like you've lost the ability to sort of have that person get their vote cast and counted. That's the, the rationale. I, w- I would say that, you know, we're also at this point thinking a lot about changes. Uh, one of the sort of issues that we t- we've talked about for a long time is, and, and you hear in, in most trainings, I'd say, when you train volunteers to do this, is, well, what do I do about the Republican observer who's there? What are they going to do? What are my rights and responsibilities or, or role with regard to that person? And then election day comes around and usually there's maybe a small handful of Republicans who have actually gone through the process of getting certified to be inside the voting location. I mean, you have other people who are doing electioneering beyond the 40 foot, 100 foot, whatever the the limitation line is. Almost every state has one. Um, So you'll have people outside polling places who are handing out information. And certainly we collect information about people who are harassing voters and crossing the line. You know, for the most part, Republicans haven't shown up inside polling places. In my experience, I've had one report where there was somebody, a Republican who was placed in a polling place who was literally like challenging every voter, which at the very least gums up the works, right? And I think the election official just threw them out after 20 minutes, right? They were like, this is not why you're here. I can't have you here. And they threw them out. So like it it has mostly not been that big an issue. I think we're seeing an increase, right? In the way Republicans are viewing and handling the questions of what's happening in the polling place itself. So between the fact that, you know, there's just been this increase in polarization and there's been this move on the other side to not accept the idea that elections could result in Democrats winning elections, there's more, I think, risk that we're going to see a lot more activity on the Republican side in this regard. And so at that point, you know, it's not a question so much of being confrontational as it's a question of documenting It's a question of recording what's going on and creating that record, right? So that if you do end up in a litigation situation or you do end up in a situation where you have to have some sort of a case in the court of public opinion about what's happening, that we have people who are trained and know what they're doing in those polling places and recording what's going on. So voter protection has gotten, I think, more important over time. 
And I think that it also has become more important sort of in the campaign structure. Um, it's been a little bit of an afterthought, right? Like sort of something you kind of get that with the fact that lawyers get sort of shunted into that. It's like, oh, you're a lawyer. Like, yeah, you do voter protection. They put you in that space and and that's fine. But at the same time, like the voter protection director is traditionally hired in June or July uh, for general election. There isn't really voter protection that's done in the primary season traditionally. This year, I think there are a couple of states um, that are thinking about doing that. It's a little bit of a backwater within the campaign infrastructure. But I, I think that's also changing. I think that uh, campaign leadership is recognizing that voter protection has a role to play in terms of campaign strategy, in terms of how you allocate resources, and potentially in terms of like how you interface with the election authorities within states. I mean, voter protection has always had sort of that legal role of saying like, you know, are you meeting your deadlines? Are you announcing your polling places in, in proper time? Are you doing the right things with zeroing machines and running um, you know, test sites and things like that. But I think that that role is even expanding to sort of, well, how do we, how do we make sure that the election administration is not going to be something that disadvantages our candidates? If I had to guess, I would say it's extremely rare that voter protection allows enough people more to vote that should vote to make a difference in an election. Maybe it's a Florida in 2000 or one of these really tight ones, which of course is where all the eyeballs are and where, where it really matters. Is that your sense or do you think that it matters a lot on the margin? I guess what I'd say is that the it is really hard for us. What is the statistic, the money ball statistic, like hits over replacement that like, you know, we don't we don't have a votes over replacement metric that we can point to with regard to our And you don't know if it's if there could just be like a feeling in voters, oh, I see someone on my side, you know, and more people go to vote because they know there is some protection for them or they hear about that. It's probably a very hard calculation uh, or impossible calculation to make. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the the way I would the way I would look at it is like, you know, when we tell people that every vote matters, right? And then they they look at the outcomes and they say, well, you know, so so and so won by X thousand, X ten thousands, X millions of votes, like my vote didn't make that much difference. And you say like, you're looking at it sort of from the wrong end of the telescope. So in Virginia in 2017, the election in which Ralph Northam was elected uh, governor, and we also um, made gains that I think we were really surprised to make in the General Assembly. The General Assembly ended up remaining in Republican hands because of one, the closest, the closest delegate race ended up with a Republican winning. And the Republican who won ultimately won by having their name pulled out of a hat. Yeah, I remember that. Because the election was literally split 50-50. Like it was the, the Democrat and the Republican had exactly the same number of votes. Right? So if, if we can save one vote, two votes, three votes in that circumstance, and the problem is you never know which one of those elections it is that you need to be covering. Writ large, it's the same thing, right? The terrifying statistic from 2020 is something like, what, 22,000 votes distributed across three states, and, and we would have lost the Electoral College vote again, and, and Donald Trump would still be president. We're not now going to spend a lot of time as a national campaign sort of pouring resources into Missouri because Missouri has become a very red state. It's not a complete guessing game about what the swing states are and where the 
where the votes need to be captured. But like, as you try and get closer and closer and more and more granular in terms of where you say like, ah, yes, if we can just save five votes in this precinct, we'll change the outcome of this election. We'll not, I don't know that we'll ever have data that'll get us that fine tune. So you have to run a program that's broad enough that it covers that, that band of uncertainty. The decision-making point could occur in this, anywhere in this space. Who are the players in sort of democratic voter protection world? I, early in this podcast, I interviewed Alexis at Access to Democracy, which then uh, Hannah Freed later on, that got absorbed into the lawyers committee. The voting lawyers, Mark Elias, people like that. What's the ecosystem that is involved in this kind of thing? So, I mean, you know, Fair Fight is probably the most well-known organization that has really emphasized voter protection and like recruiting volunteers and and people. I mean, it's not their exclusive focus, but but that's been a big a big focus. I mean, you mentioned Mark Elias and his firm Perkins Coie, where he came from that have been very active in the, on the litigation side, on the sort of strategic side in this, and obviously in, in with, with national campaigns advising them. It's a function that has been, um, that's been brought into all of the national committees. There's a DNC role for voter protection. There's, um, there's some bifurcation below that into sort of the tech side, and the more pure voter protection sort of policy side. And then the other committees also have staff that, that focuses on this. The people we're talking to probably the most this at this point in the cycle is, is the folks at the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, because this year obviously is going to feature a lot of competitive Senate elections. Uh, you don't have a presidential to sort of oversee the whole thing. But the flip side of that is the, is the DNC runs the, the major technology platform for voter protection. Which, as I understand it, uses the branding that has existed for a very long time, since way before I was involved in politics, Lawyers Bound for Justice, or LBJ. And since 2012, LBJ has been synonymous with the web-based application that's used both to assign volunteers to polling places and for those volunteers to then have their user-facing, volunteer-facing portal to log in and report on on how the day goes as they as they volunteer. So LBJ has been a project that that the DNC has run since essentially 2012, at least in this form. It's the source of truth in a sense for the voter protection teams in different states. They're using LBJ to um, record where people are assigned to volunteer, and then make sure that they're actually there when they say they're going to be there, and then to both report on, communicate about, and resolve incidents that occur throughout the day. And then that becomes, of course, the repository of all the incident information if you do end up in a situation where you need to call Mark Elias <laughs> and get into, um, get into a litigation situation. So to some extent, I think what, what we're trying to do is to create a system that works with LBJ to do this assignment work in a way that's much more easier on the voter protection staff, but consistent with what, what the DNC has been supporting these last, you know, 10 years. So your firm is Foresight Resilience Strategies. That's your main cyber firm? That's the firm I've been doing for the last seven years. And is this a project of Foresight or is it, a, is there a separate enterprise that deals, that's Osprey that deals with uh, voter protection? How is that set up. 
So we've, yeah, we've organized separately. So Foresight has been the vehicle I've used for the cybersecurity risk measurement uh, work that I've done with individual companies and um, standards or um, control system operators. I did some China consulting, actually, you know, for, for companies that were interested in either setting up in China or addressing China-related um, competition to their business. But so that's, that's basically been me and a couple of unrelated people who've helped me out or, or participated in that business over the years. But Osprey really has been something we set up specifically among the group that sort of continued to meet after the Georgia runoff in 2021. We started out as just a, a weekly call. And then, you know, we have a, a CTO uh, now, sort of more formalized, but a developer who continued to meet with us, uh, an organizer who had worked on um, especially Cure in Iowa, North Carolina, and Georgia during the 2020 cycle, data scientist who has a full-time job with one of the national labs. Uh, those are sort of the four core founders. And then we've had a couple of other um, front-end developers and folks who've been in democratic tech uh, for a certain amount of time who've helped us out and advised us. But we eventually did incorporate. We um, we worked on the Wisconsin April election. Um, as you probably know, Wisconsin has elections all the time. <laughs> I think they have four elections, four statewide elections a year, no matter what. So uh, we worked on the April election. That was before we were you know, organized as a company and very much an alpha product at that point, right? We, we sort of said, whatever we've got, we'll, we'll share with you, with the voter protection team, with the Democratic State Party there, and um, and then uh, actually worked out the incorporation and got ourselves organized, and then uh, worked with Virginia for the gubernatorial election. That's sort of to your to your earlier point, right? Like, I think we did really well in Virginia for the role that we played. We obviously did not succeed in making the Virginia election a successful election for Democrats. The outcome was not at all the outcome that we were hoping for. The flip side is, right, I think that the voter protection staff thought that we were extremely helpful in making sure that we had volunteers. You know, one of the things we tout there is the fact that they were able to hold a training for election day volunteers on the Saturday before the election. So normally you don't assign volunteers to polling places until they've been trained. So late on Saturday afternoon before the election, you had uh, about one-fifth of their program's volunteers freshly trained and unassigned. And we were able before using campaign lingo, right, HOP, before head on pillow, to get everybody assigned. All of those assignments entered into the LBJ, the Lawyers Bound for Justice app, and then have the LBJ app, which has this functionality, send them all emails with their assignments. Election day assignments tend to run from like, you know, zero dark 30 on Tuesday morning. So, you know, you're saying to people like, we want you to get there at five o'clock in the morning because the poll is open at six, but you have to introduce yourself and make sure you're in place and present your credential and all of this stuff. So people are planning to go to sleep at like 8 p.m. on Monday night. And if you if you get them their assignment in the wee hours of Sunday night, Monday morning or something, they're, they're much more likely to flake. They're much more likely to say, I needed to know this beforehand. I made other plans for Tuesday. I told you I was going to do this three weeks ago, and then you forgot about me, or I thought you forgot about me, so I've decided to do something else. Um, so getting those assignments done between you know Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening was 
was really extremely helpful and put a fifth of the program actually in the field that otherwise could would have been much less optimally placed and much less um, likely to um, to show up, much more likely to flake. So, so that's the kind of thing that that we can do that we can measure, and we're obviously proud of how, being able to do that. But um, but it is hard, obviously, then when you when you lose an election like that at the same time, and you think. We did well in our in our domain, but we didn't do well enough to to make it. There's always bigger forces at work. It strikes me a company is kind of a difficult format sometimes for a small project or a you know project that doesn't have a large market. Let's put it that way. There's only X number of states. There's only so much voter protection software that one can put together. It's hard to pay people and grow and retain people and do a lot of things that a typical for-profit business would endeavor to do. How do you think about making this sustainable? What's the business model? How do you get people to invest or do you, how do you charge? How, how do you make this a real business? And I, that's definitely, I mean, that's a really good question. We are solving a fairly specific problem for a fairly specific part of the campaign infrastructure, at least at present. So I think the goal would be to find other places in the campaign infrastructure to begin with, then potentially moving out into nonprofit space, and then you know seeing what else is available or what else is possible in the market, where this type of assignment optimization is a useful thing that people need to have done. To some extent, I think there's there's some of this in field. I actually listened to I listened to your interview with Jeremy Smith again uh, the last couple of days. The first one where he introduces his his whole history. Yeah, no, the first one. Yeah, he's an interesting fella. Yeah, but but you know his his discussion of going to the Walmart <laughs> in Texas. Uh, you know, he said he said basically that you know he he was a brand new newly minted volunteer on the campaign. He went out for field and. He went to the staging area and they said, go to Walmart and sign up, sign up new voters, register voters. And he said, oh, well, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's like logic and data behind this. Right. And of course, as the day progressed, he realized, no, no one had really thought this through. So, you know, I think that's another. There, there are many places in, in campaign politics where there is logic and data. Yeah. And there are many places where it's quite limited. So finding the ones where it's limited and and figuring out whether this is an opportunity to um, whether there's an opportunity to say like well you can optimize right you can if you can give us the constraints or we can determine the constraints for what makes the most sense in terms of allocating these resources we can we can run algorithms that will match these you, things. you could be like a political data science team or something yeah, yeah yeah I also think that like there's an opportunity for us to expand the services we're offering voter protection to some extent sort of to become a um, a resource on the legal side. It's not something we've built out. And I don't think it'll be something we build out this year because I think we want to stay focused on, in the midterm context, serving as many states as we can with, uh, with this matching algorithm app and making sure that we're, we're delivering on the promise that we're, we're trying to make. But I think that over time, you know, we may be in a position to um, deal with other ballot access issues as well. That I think also is the hope. The hard part in terms of our current 
sort of revenue structure is like figuring out how the the, the sort of individual operating entities here will be able to sort of build a mosaic of payment for us, right? I think for us to, to be able to have a sustainable future and do the development we need to do, no single entity. So the, the, the DS is not going to be able to say to us, yes, we can pay the full amount for all the states we want you to work in. The state parties are not going to be able to pay as much per state as we would want them to. Individual candidates or campaigns are are sort of a different and kind of funny play, right? The DNC might be interested in having us as a value add to the LBJ model. And they're they're doing some development. We've been in close touch with them and worked well with them in the Virginia context. It would be great there to see the DNC say, like, we want to test our new functionality with LBJ with you. And I think they'll be happy to do that. But it would also be nice to say, like, well, you know, some support for our, our effort would be helpful also. Why, why doesn't it make sense for this to be housed in the DNC or not in a for-profit? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think, I think that's probably one, one way to, um, to move in the future. One, one sort of potential way out of this would be, or exit from the, from the business, would be to sort of move it directly into the infrastructure, right? So whether that's the DNC or the DS or some other like national entity, or whether it goes into um, one of the other larger sort of data organizations. I mean, we were talking about Jeremy, does Civitech want to have this as a component? You will be very familiar with the, the, the biggest player in the space, right? But does NGP Van want it? In terms of your own allocation of time, how much is, how much of your world is this and what would you like it to be? So right, right now I'd say it's probably about, um, 50% of what I'm working on. The cybersecurity stuff actually is is for me a little bit slow. We kind of pivoted to working more with the Center for Internet Security and building a, a version of the model. We didn't talk a lot about this, but the route that I went in cybersecurity was rather than hands-on keyboards, building tools that address threats or vulnerabilities or anything like that, I actually got into the space of cybersecurity risk measurement, which is really pretty strategic. Uh, and what I found with companies was that I would want to sell them my consulting service or my model and, and give them a report on what I thought their cybersecurity risk was. And they would say, that's great, but we still need to buy tools to address the risk, or we still need to implement controls to address the risk. Do you do that? And I'd say, no, 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 you need somebody else to do that. And so took a step back and really pivoted to working with the Center for Internet Security, which maintains a control system to try and give their users a model for measuring their implementation. Well, they have a model for measuring their implementation of their controls, translating that into an actuarial risk measurement. So that's sort of a long way of saying that that, is, that process has moved to being less time consuming. So I spend less time working on those uh, cybersecurity risk issues I have a whole separate sideline dealing with unemployment insurance policy, which is probably the topic for another podcast that takes up a certain amount of my time. But Osprey has really been taking up 50 or 50 plus percent of my time. And you would like it to be all of your time? Um, I would say both, both and, right? Like on the one hand, I would love to get rid of the boom bust cycle of a political business. On the other hand, the boom bust cycle is probably never going to go completely away. Obviously, I'm doing different things now than I might do closer to election season uh, in terms of marketing and 
talking to as many people as possible about the product and stuff like that. And then as you get closer to the election, you spend a lot more time, I think, working on the the actual problems that are cropping up in the election. But I, I also suspect that I will spend less time, you know, on Osprey in the spring than I will in the summer and the in the fall. You have such a great career up to this point in the government and outside. And I'm glad that this particular niche problem has come to your attention and you're working on it. It seems valuable. But it also seems potentially small for you. I mean, there are so many things that can make a difference and you're well-connected and uh, capable. Why is this a good fit? Why is this like maintaining your interest and and where you want to be? That's a good question. Um, and probably one that I haven't really thought of in those terms before. Obviously, I haven't been a full-time voter protection person since 2008, but I I do feel like there's a continuity in the involvement that I've had. And, and a lot of times that life is most fulfilling when you carry a thread through and, and it's something that you kind of develop a passion for, but I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think that's a big part of it. Right. And, and my work in campaigns have done sort of up to and including full-time load of work around campaigns in, um, in election cycles, usually close to general elections, but not, uh, but I've never been paid staff on a campaign. I've never sort of had to um, deal with the internal politics of a campaign, so to speak, or, you know, the division of resources between field and voter protection and GOTV, et cetera, et cetera. So, so to me, like, I guess I kind of <laughs> embraced the Obama era idea of like staying in my lane that I feel like I have a really good understanding of how voter protection works, what the needs are there, which, you know, I mean, potentially is, is, is making me think that I'm solving a bigger problem than I'm solving. Uh, so that may be part of the, part of the, the issue. Right? I mean, one of the nice things about being one of the few people in a lane is that a lot of lanes get bigger as time moves forward. And if you're there, you can be the the expert, the person, build the firm. I hope that voter protection doesn't require enormous resources, but there are a lot of threats to it right now. So it's reasonable to think that it's a growing area. Yeah. And, and I guess like, you know, creating a nice solid base in this, that we would be sort of a, an assumption. And, and there's nobody, there are a couple other groups in voter protection who have sought to raise money or to be networks for voter protection volunteers, people with experience and things like that. But there really isn't anybody else doing a tech product in voter protection. And you haven't raised any money. We have not. We did. Um, we've been in close contact over time with like uh, higher ground labs. Um, actually talked with Betsy and Sarah yesterday. We were not accepted into their 2022 cohort. We did ask. They have the skepticism that underlies your question, right? Is this a big enough thing to make... Is it, is it investable? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, my response to them was, I am, my goal is to prove you wrong. <laughs> right. right. And you, which, met, yeah. which as they said, and we all agreed, would be great. It would be fantastic. Everybody would be thrilled if we proved them wrong and we solved a problem that actually existed and made an investable business yeah. out of it. And, and found adjacent problems. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to hear where you are at this stage. And um, 
Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? I guess the, the one thing that, that we talk about in voter protection that is um, that may distinguish us a little bit from the previous iterations or attempts to build tech products around voter protection is that integration with LBJ, right? We talked a little bit about it, but we didn't talk. I think that would be the one thing I would I would elaborate on a little bit. Well, then go ahead and, and elaborate on it. I, I've only, I've heard, had other guests who've mentioned LBJ in interviews, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, so, I, and I'm sure that it's not widely known. Tell me a little bit more about it and how it works with your product. So, so the, the, the interesting thing about LBJ or the, the cautionary tale, I think that, that we are sort of trying to keep in mind about LBJ is that it was built in-house at the DNC, as far as we can tell, or it's, and actually it's a little bit shrouded, right? It's a little bit difficult to figure out exactly what happened to it. Um, but it's a bit of orphan software. So in the sense, like it was built by developers who were either on the campaign in 2012 or in the DNC or a combination, people moved on. And as a result, like it's a little bit like locked in, in Amber, right? Is it something that you would be willing to pull into your enterprise and take responsibility for if they were willing to? That's the flip side of them absorbing your stuff. We've tried to build something that is adjacent to LBJ and will work well with it, with an intentional thought towards the fact that LBJ is something that the DNC has invested time, effort, and energy into. You want to fit into the ecosystem or you get resistance to what you're doing. Right, 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 right. But I, I think on top of that, if we come in and say like, oh yeah, you don't need LBJ, you just need us. And we're going to do all the things that LBJ does better. And we're going to do other things that LBJ doesn't do. And since it's a single system, it all integrates. That's sort of a, a recipe for antagonizing people. It's a recipe for making it much more difficult for us to do, to do our job. But the flip side is that we want to build something that's supportable with documentation, continuous implementation and development that like that will not suffer a fate in the sense of like, you want new features, you want, you have bugs, you want things resolved, that it's not, um, it's not a system. LBJ, I think suffers a little bit from the idea that it has to, um, it doesn't have that type of support capability built into it. And so to some extent it does what it does and we don't want to mess with it in a way that would potentially break it. Or when I say we, the DNC doesn't want to. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense, but it would be nice to have a way of addressing that problem on a longer term basis. So the sustainability is really something that's super important. The political tech space for, for the party and its uh, allies, it doesn't have a really good way of solving the small app, niche app question. There are a lot of them out there. Some of them are you know, solo companies. Some of them are uh, housed at other big companies. Some of them are in party committees, some nonprofits, not solved problem where this stuff can be, can reside and be maintained, you know, things that are spun up for presidentials or other type campaigns. A lot of times we lose that intellectual property, your effort to make a sustainable piece of this niche is part of that bigger problem. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And yeah, unfortunately, I think from the grassroots, it's hard to solve the bigger problem, right? Maybe we can be an example of one way to... to um, or, or maybe, to you know, or maybe there's a consortium that could be built 
providers of different niche point solutions certainly would be interested in in people working on that problem and finding different ways to solve it. So that would be a sort of the holy grail, right? If we could have a system where different products but aligned and coordinated in a way that like it makes sense from the campaign perspective what they're paying for and it makes sense for the people who are doing the developing. I mean higher ground is sort of an example of an organizing group that is helping to generate these things, but it's separate companies of different sizes and potentials. They're not the only ones. And there's a lot of people being entrepreneurs outside of that or not in a for-profit model. And they put together that tech landscape slide every year. And it's sort of, it's overwhelming when you look at it the first time, you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of different players in a lot of different places. And they don't have them all on it either. I mean, it's just, it, and and there are other people keeping track of the tech landscape with different lenses on it. It's a complex enterprise to 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 support politics with technology, for sure. Yeah. Well, great to talk to you today. Is there anything else you want to say? No, this has been great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we'll hope we'll get a chance to stay in touch, maybe touch base again, and hopefully I'll have I'll have good news about the way twenty twenty two has gone for for Osprey. Check in with me when you think there's there's something to say again, and I'd love to, to hear from you. That was Adam Bobro. Adam is at ospreycs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.